0: If you need a Bible, please lift your hand and we'll bring a Bible to you. If you don't own a Bible, or let's just say if you don't own an ESV and you want to kind of stay in the same translation that I uh, use, um, just keep it, write your name in the front, you're not defacing it. Just just keep it and, and that's yours. Um, we want to make sure that you are following along with us in Scripture. We'll be in a couple different ones today, one mainly. Uh, we're talking about uh, the Apostles' Creed. Uh, Last week we had an introductory message on what that is, what it means, why it's important. So If you're here like, why are we going through this creed? I do commend that you go through that. I don't want to re-preach last week's message uh, uh, on the importance of it and why we're visiting it. I think one of the important reasons why uh, why we do that is because we need to shape our understanding of God because if we don't intentionally shape our understanding of God, we'll sort of revert to Our own impressions and many times misimpressions of what God is like, and that directly affects how we relate to God. We will relate to God wrongly if we are misinformed about who God really is, what He's really like. And sometimes it's just the the platitudes and the trite sayings that get, you know, start floating around, and, and maybe we don't, we might use or adopt carelessly. Something like God only helps those who help themselves. Hmm. Is that is that true? Well, well, no, that's not true. Uh, let go and let God. Well, what does that mean? Is that like a frozen, uh, you know, version of a Disney God? You know, uh, what does that mean? It, it takes unpacking. What do you mean by that? Um, phrases and saying. Uh, wow, God really showed up today. Well, where was He before? Absent? Was He? Was He not? Was He just kind of sleeping? What does that mean? God showed up, and so. They can be sometimes. These phrases can mean the right thing, but sometimes they're used wrongly, and they're they're not, and they're too simple, too oversimplified. Even when we directly quote Scripture, "All things work together for good." Well, that's that's a direct quote, you know, Amen. But often, what we mean by that is something detached from the rest of Romans eight, and what we mean by God works everything together for good, is is something kind of different than what Paul is getting at in Romans 8. And so what we have is a God that looks a little bit different than what Scripture looks like, and then we have expectations of that God, and then He lets us down. But God doesn't let us down, right? Uh, We let ourselves down with our misimpressions of who God is, the false expectations built on wrong understandings based on Christian bumper stickers, coffee mugs, or uh, verses taken out of context. Uh, I can do all things through him who gives me strength. But what, is, what does that mean? Can, can you literally do anything? Uh, like you can easily get into a theology where God is your genie, and if you rub the lamp, he will grant you anything. You could do anything if you just rub the lamp. And is, that, is that what Scripture is saying? No, but it will affect your prayer life if you see God that way. And I think what oftentimes happens is we end up with a God who's kind of in the background, The way these phrases and sayings, these these trite sayings, these platitudes, the way they often play out is God ends up being sort of an in-the-background God, and man is put a little bit more in the center, Um, uh, even, um, even in ways that would seek to kind of defend God or make God this God that is better than your neighbor might think. You know, your neighbor thinks God is a grumpy God who lets bad things happen, and to try to overcome that, you say, no, 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 God just, he's just waiting for us to make the wrong move, or we're the ones that did it. You know, we, we, we push prayer out of school, so this is what we get. And Yeah, there might be some partial truth to that, but as we push God into the background, he becomes a less and less powerful God. Man becomes more and more powerful, and where the things that we don't like in life, it's just because we didn't do it. So what's the prescription? Well, the prescription is for us to do it better, right? And that puts us in the driver's seat, and it starts with a misunderstanding of God, even if it might be well-intentioned, because we don't want God to look bad and to try to save face for God. We end up painting a a different picture of God. Well, he's not ugly. And what is our version of beauty? Well, in beauty, there's no wrath and there's no judgment, so God becomes a sort of judgeless, never angry God. and It's just not biblically true, And when you end up with a nice, kind, cuddly, rosy cheeked God that only wants you to climb up on his lap and ask what the next present is that you want from his celestial uh, sleigh bag, uh, you end up with a messed up Christianity, a messed up prayer life, messed up way of raising your kids, messed up way of evangelizing people because you're evangelizing the wrong God. So we want to look at what Scripture says God is like and what Scripture emphasizes uh, over and over again is what we see in the first line of the creed, which I think do we have it uh, for them. Uh, the first line of the Apostles' Creed emphasizes God's power and prerogative. It says, we believe in God the Father, Almighty Maker of heaven and earth. Some of you have grown up reading that, saying it out loud in church, in mass, um, and, and things like that. It's ancient. We believe in God the Father, almighty maker of heaven and earth. And we see that emphasized in the first opening lines of Scripture, don't we? In the beginning, what? God created the heavens and the earth. And so it starts with God as creator. And what I want to turn your attention to, uh, the book of Acts. we return to uh, the book of Acts, we're going to be here briefly and then we'll be in one more passage just a little bit longer. And I want you to see that uh, God is a God of authority because He is creator. The fact that He is creator means that He has authority. And so God is very much not like the reluctant, kind of soft peddling parent who's afraid to discipline their kids because they want their kids, to, they want to protect their kids' autonomy. Right? I don't want to tell my kids no. I want them to express themselves and learn. Yeah, your job is to guide their lives. So God is not a, in the background kind of going, oh, I hope they figure it out. He's creator. That means he has ownership over all things. And that's why the Bible starts that way. That's why the creed starts that way. God is sovereign. That means he has power and prerogative. Power and prerogative. Well, we see that in Acts 17. You have Paul preaching the sermon to uh, mainly an audience of, of unbelievers. There's idols everywhere. He points out this one idol that has a label on it that says, to the unknown God, and, and he uses that as his entrance point to say, hey, I, I want to talk to you about this unknown God, this God that you don't know, that I know. Let me tell you about him. I want to read from verses 22. We'll go through 29. And I want you to follow that theme of when he describes to them who this God is, he describes that God as creator. And because he's creator, we should respond to him a certain way. So the first impression that we need to have of God is God as creator. So Paul, standing in the midst of the Areopagus, said, "'Men of Athens, I perceive that in every way you are very religious. "'For as I passed along and observed the objects of your worship,' And he made from one man every nation of mankind to live on all the face of the earth, having determined allotted periods and the boundaries of their dwelling place so that they should seek God and perhaps feel their way toward him and find him. Yet he is actually not far from each one of us, for in him we live and move and have our being, as even some of your own poets have said, for we are indeed his offspring. So Paul is quoting one of their poets he probably wouldn't quote everything they've ever written, but where they do get something right, he's going to use that and say, see, you guys already believe this, don't you? You guys have already been exposed to this truth, haven't you? That God is creator of things, and the fact that he's creator of things plays into the fact that he's not some detached creator who spins the world into existence and doesn't care what happens with it, but actually, we are his offspring. We are his children, and so just like a father cares very much about what happens in the home, the father's supposed to run the home and manage that home in love and in care. But with oversight, the father has prerogative over the household. We're his offspring. We're not detached creations that he has no involvement with. He's very much involved. And he wants his creation to find him because we are lost children. And so you see how Paul connects this concept of the fact that God is over all things, creator over everything. Everything has come from him. Every person has come from him. And their purpose, verse 27, is to seek God. They live because of him, verse 28. And then he keeps going in verse 29. I won't read it all, but his response is, if we're his offspring, verse 29, being then his offspring, we, we should repent. We, we shouldn't treat him like he's just kind of a stone or... Some image, we should come to him and seek him, and and he 's calling people everywhere to repent and so because he 's creator we we are responsible to uh, respond to him as father uh, Romans 1.20 draws this connection we 'll just put this up here so you don't have to uh, so you don 't have to turn to it, but Romans one twenty Paul makes it clear, he says God, he's talking about God, his invisible attributes, namely his eternal power and divine nature. I want you to see what Paul is saying here. The things that you can't see about God, actually you can see them. The fact that God is powerful, the fact that God is eternal and divine, you've been able to see it, even if you're not exposed to Scripture, they've been clearly perceived ever since the creation of the world in the things that have been made so that they were without excuse. So if somebody doesn't have a Bible, do they have a mountain? Do they have a landscape? Do they have a sunset? Do they see nature? Do they see birds? Do they see order in creation? They see that something powerful has produced this. And Paul's, Paul's implication is, it's not just, oh, wow, something produces. this. If, if God produced this, we owe him something. If God is over us as creator, then we, we should respond to him as his offspring, as a father. So he has. it's not just that he has power to create, it's that his power to create also means that he has prerogative over that creation. So we worship him as our creator, and I think that ties into what it means to be a father. He has fatherly rights over us. This is why Paul says we are his offspring and on the heels of all this creation stuff. Uh, One more verse to put up here, Malachi 2.10. You see these two concepts connected in the first part of this verse. Have we not all one Father? Has not one God created us? Right? Creator, Father. Now you might wonder why so many people want to buck against this idea of creation. Why is it so attractive to think that things just exploded into existence, evolved over time, with no personal impetus behind it? Well, because if you can get rid of God as Creator, you can get rid of Him as Father. And so it's a heart of rebellion that seeks to uh, rewrite the story of our origin. And in fact, what we learn in Genesis 1 and 2 is that Genesis 1 and 2 is not just an origin story, but it's an oversight story, and it's an obligation story. In other words, God didn't just or you know we didn't just originate with God that's true but the fact that we originate with God means that he has oversight over us and if he has oversight over us we have obligations toward him and so God as creator has fatherly rights over our lives um i've been asking around recently if because uh, I assumed everyone needed to read this book, and I'm, I'm finding many people haven't read uh, Mary Shelley's Frankenstein. You have to completely get out of your head the Halloween flathead, green with the bolts in the neck, dude that can't talk. You know, like, That has nothing to do <laughs> with Mary Shelley's Frankenstein. Uh, I would recommend the book if it wasn't uh, kind of boring, <laughs> frankly, and, and difficult to get through. But I think the story is a fascinating story of a, an ambitious scientist Victor Frankenstein, Frankenstein is the creator, not the the monster, Uh, and Victor Frankenstein uh, wants to create something and and animate it with life, right, and and bring life to this being, and uh, when he brings life to this being that he's got laid out on the table, it immediately becomes grotesque to the point where Victor Frankenstein freaks out, he has a panic attack, runs out of the room, and he wants nothing to do with this beast, right? And the beast feels this detachment from its creator. And that detachment from its creator creates this deep longing in his heart that he doesn't know how to fill. He tries to fill it with community. Humans shun him. Humans hate him. Humans run from him. Humans shoot him, shoot at him, right? Uh, and so he takes vengeance against his creator and he starts going on this killing spree. And uh, you, can, you can read it if, if you want to. Um, but that story is a story of a detachment between creator and created being. And this creator that brings this monster into existence didn't know what he was getting into. He only did it out of ambition. And as soon as he saw the ugliness of this creature, he hightails it out of there. He wants nothing to do with the monster, and he can do nothing about the monster. Tries he might, he can't do anything about the monster. So who's the monster? Right? The the thing that was on the table? or this scientist that created this mess. Now, as much as we want to defend God and go, no, our ugliness is our fault, God is just kind of like, whoa, whoa, (laughs) I didn't see that coming, there's nothing I can do about it. Is that really saving face for God? Or does that make God the monster? A God who would create something that he doesn't know anything to do with it, create something he doesn't have any foresight to, oh, I didn't know that was gonna happen, oh, I didn't know they were gonna be ugly well, God, can you help with this ugliness? No, I mean, that's your fault, free will and everything, you know? It doesn't actually protect God. It actually defames him to think of God as Victor Frankenstein. No, God creates with an intentionality. And even when we become grotesque, God doesn't run out of the room. He does what it takes to redeem us from our grotesqueness. He loves us to the point where even when we are not what we're supposed to be, He does what it takes with His initiative and His power to create a path for our redemption. So God is a wonderful God, and it's not just that He's Creator and is a Father that owns rights over us, which is true. But that wouldn't be good news by itself. It's only good news if He's a good kind of Father. And I think many of us have grown up maybe with parents, even if they were well-intentioned, parents that fail, parents that aren't perfect, and fathers that mess up, and we easily project our fathers onto God and go, well, God must be like that, full of failures and disappointments. But He's a good God. I want to turn you to one more verse to help you understand and help you shape what God is like as a father, and that's Matthew 7. Matthew 7 is a pretty familiar passage this whole section is uh, taught often. Comes on the heels of the Lord's Prayer in the previous chapter. Who doesn't like to quote verse one of chapter seven? Don't judge. That's that's a fun Facebook argument. And then in verse seven through eleven, we get this chunk. I want you to see how central to this passage is the concept of God being a good father. It's about prayer, and he, Jesus is teaching. Know how to give good gifts to your children. How much more will your Father who is in heaven give good things to those who ask him? So You see there that he, wants, he draws the analogy from human fatherhood when he says, uh, which one of you if a son asks him for bread? So verse 9 is Jesus basically going, imagine you're a dad, okay, and your son comes up to you and asks you for something. So he's, he's, he's drawing on your understanding of what fatherhood looks like. I think some of us who've had the privilege to become parents, and those of us who are uh, mothers and fathers, we do get the privilege of a little bit of extra insight here because there are certain things that, that really you, 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 you only understand conceptually. It's not until you live it, until you hold a little baby in your arms and you understand what it's like when a child comes to you and asks you for something and what that's like. So he draws that analogy and then he said, now imagine this child asks you for bread. Your child just wants to eat. He's not, he's not asking for candy or another Xbox game. Can I just have some bread? <laughs> what kind of father are you? If you're like, no, you're not eating bread. We have tons of it. It's cheap. I can afford it. But I hate you. You know, like, no, of course, of course, you would give a child bread. But he even ups the absurdity of it. It's not just absurd to think that a father would deny bread, but go, oh, I'm going to give you bread, and instead give a stone, and when the kid breaks his teeth on it, (laughs) ha, 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 or it's maniacal, it's crazy, it's outlandish, it's absurd, but that's Jesus' point. Jesus is saying, you think God is like that. You think God just wants to punish you, that God doesn't want you to be nourished, that God doesn't want you to enjoy life. Right? And he just wants to break your teeth on stones all the time. Think about a child that asks a parent, can I have some fish? You're eating fish. You've got your fish. Everyone else is eating it. And the child's like, can I have some fish? And you go, yeah, sure. And you give them a snake instead. Right? It's evil. And He's saying it's interesting that those of us who actually are evil would project a greater evil on God when actually at our best, he's better than our best. You being evil would never do that. You would never do that. A good father would never do that. How much more would God do better than that? So he's arguing from the lesser to the greater. And we often think of God as lesser than even ourselves, is Jesus' point. So whatever your dad was like, whatever your parents were like, some better than others, we need to allow Scripture to shape what God is like. What Jesus is teaching us is that God is better than the best parent we can imagine. Even those of us who've had parents that maybe were, they're pretty messed up. Most of us would think, yeah, but if, if we were hungry, they wouldn't just give us something else to kill us. They, they wouldn't give us stones and poisonous serpents to kill us. I mean. So he's arguing from a general parenting principle of responding to your children's requests and saying how much more will the father give good gifts to his children, to the children who ask him if you give good gifts to your children. Of course God is not like that. God is not out to get you. God is not devising schemes to crush you and make your life completely miserable while he sits back and laughs. That is not a picture of God. The Father. He's a good Father. He's an amazing Father. And He wants to provide us with what we need. And He wants to invite us into this relationship where, yes, sometimes He waits for the asking to do it. And He wants us to come to Him and ask. Jesus just taught. He already knows what we need. In chapter 6, what was it? Verse 8. Your Father knows what you need before you ask Him. And then Jesus still teaches, but ask Him though. Why? God has invited us into this relationship where prayer doesn't produce things that he didn't think of. God, I have an idea. Oh, man, I really wish I had you back in Joshua's day before things really got messed up in in the land. Like, no, he, he already knows your needs before you ask, but he wants you to ask. He wants you to come to him. So there's this fatherly relationship that he desires When you come knocking, he's not like, oh, why are you knocking again? He wants you to knock. Why are you waiting is the implication. You know God wants to give it to you. You know God wants to give you good things. Why are you waiting? I hope it's not because you think God is an evil, grumpy God who doesn't want good for you. But Jesus is saying it's not true. It's untrue. So a good father gives good things to his children, and we need to think of God along these terms. He's not a detached creator. He's an involved creator because he's father over his children. And so, of course, this emphasizes what we just talked about. God has the power and the prerogative. He has the power to give you bread. He has the power to give you fish. He has the power to open that door. He has the power to help you find what you're looking for and what you need. He also has the power to say no. He also has the power to close the door. He has the power, and he has the prerogative. Earlier in the previous chapter, when Jesus taught his disciples to pray, how does that prayer start? Our Father in heaven, okay, he's our Father. Hallowed be your name, your kingdom come, your will be done. Therefore, our asking of the Father has to be in line with his will. So he teaches us even how to approach the Father by understanding... The father is not someone who will give you anything your evil heart desires, but a father who wants to give good gifts to his children. You'll notice in the analogy. He says if a child asks for bread, the father's not going to give a stone. But what if the child asks for the stone? Would a good father then, well, I wouldn't give you the stone. I know it's bad for you. You're going to break your teeth. But I guess we have dentist bills in the budget. And okay, here. That would be a bad father, right? A good father gives good gifts to his children. And so what Jesus is assuming here is good requests, not bad requests. This is not Jesus saying, uh, you're in the driver's seat. Could you imagine the disaster of a yes-only dad? Anything you ask of a dad, the dad says, yes. But what will the child immediately start to learn? Well, if I ask, he'll always say yes. He'll never say no. I can ask anything I want. So who's in power now? The child. Okay, and the reason why that's disastrous is because children don't know what to ask for, right? Their idea of a full meal is a big bowl of Frosted Flakes. That's their idea of nutrition. They don't care. They're not reading labels, and they shouldn't be. They're children. So a father who just says yes is a terrible father. A father who just says yes is a bad father, and it's ironic that passages like this are torn from its context to teach that God will just give you whatever you want. You want that Ferrari? You want that extra house? You want that big career? You want all that money? Well, think about how often the Bible warns against the dangers of money. So if you just ask God for money, is he just going to be like, okay, sure, I'm sure you'll handle it. No, you can't handle it because your, your heart is wicked. We can't handle wealth. It corrupts us. And so some of us, God has granted more wealth than others, and, and again, that is God's prerogative. That is according to God's will. But this passage can't turn into a genie lamp-rubbing passage where God is a celestial vending machine. All you have to do is put in the coin of prayer and out comes whatever you pick, D2, Snickers, whatever. I don't have that memorized. I just made that up. <laughs> Snickers, that's not really good right now, though. Well, God is not a vending machine. He's not a genie. He's a good father. He's a good father. And So we need to learn how to ask for bread instead of stone. We need to learn to ask for fish instead of serpents so that he'll open. And when we ask, it'll be given. God is a good father because not only is he powerful, not only is he over all things, but he uses that power to care for his children. And that's why the application is prayer. We need to understand that he's the kind of God that would give his own son to save us from our own grotesqueness. To give his own son so that we can approach him now as our lost children come home, children that are out of the home, adopted into the family, and that we can approach him on the back of what Jesus accomplished on the cross to take the wrath that's due us and bring us into a relationship with God only through Jesus Christ. And if that's true, then we should pray. If God is our maker meaning that he's our father, and he's almighty, that means he can respond to the prayer, and we should pray to him as a good father. That's what Jesus is teaching here. The fact that he's a father should shape our prayers. That's why we start with our father in heaven. It starts the prayer, and then in chapter 7, he unpacks that by saying it's a good father. His will is good. He wants to lead you. He wants to protect you. He wants to guide you. He wants to protect you from temptation. He wants you to experience forgiveness. He wants you to give forgiveness. He wants you to ask for daily bread so he can give you your daily bread, the things that you need. And so we should pray, but we should pray according to the Father's will. We don't pray according to whatever we dreamt last night, whatever we just feel like in the moment. We allow Scripture to shape our prayers because Scripture tells us what the Father wants. And so we pray according to the will of the Father. So you don't knock on God's door like He owes you something and you don't start asking things that you know will contradict what He's already revealed. We learn what He's like. We learn what His heart is like so that when we ask, our asking is already in line with what He wants. And if we can allow Scripture to shape what we ask, then we can ask in confidence. Right? And so I know for me in my prayer life, if I know that scripture has promised something and I'm just asking for something already promised, I pray that with confidence, not because I'm arrogant or because I think I prayed it right, but because God already told me this is what he wants. And so if if you harp on your children all the time about eating right, and one of them comes to you and says, you know what, you know, instead of, you know, McDonald's, can I just have a tray of like grilled chicken and veggies, can I, can we have that? You'd be like, well, yeah, I've been teaching you that, right? That's how prayer should work. We're often frustrated in our prayers because we pray for something and then we don't get it. We pray for something, something happens the opposite, right? Can you think back to a time when you were a child, maybe even a teenager, and you really wanted something bad and your parents blocked it, and now as an adult, you look back and you're like, thank the Lord, that was blocked. Maybe you were dating somebody, your parents really hated that person, maybe not hated, maybe that's... Maybe, maybe hate it. I don't know. Your parents really didn't like this person. And you're like, what in the world? This is my life. This is my person. You, 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 you just think about this person all the time. Pictures everywhere. You know, all through the night, you're, you're, you're talking on the phone with this person. You just in love with this person, but, but your parents didn't approve. Something happened. There was a breakup, and then years later, you look back, and you're like, could you imagine I married that person? In your later years' wisdom, you look back, and you're like, oh, I'm thankful that that that, that didn't happen because in the moment you thought it was your world, but it was actually gonna wreck your world. Now, that's just on the human scale, that's just on what we experience now. Think about God, right? All the things that when He says no, you should be thankful for those no's. When He makes you wait, you should be thankful that He's making you wait because He does things in His perfect time and He knows what's right and good to give. And sometimes He might be going, You're asking for a stone right now. No. That's not bread. It's bread for another guy. Don't, don't worry about him. Right? Don't worry about her. That might be a stone for you right now. And so we approach God with patience, knowing that he's fatherly, that he's good. He doesn't just have the power and the prerogative, but he's got the wisdom to dole things out as he sees fit. And so when we think about God as our creator and father, it should... It should um, inspire a prayerful life. God is not a God who's frustrated by our prayers, but He invites them and He wants them. And then we can pray in the confidence that God is going to do what's best when we pray to Him like this, when we approach Him like a child and a child that knows that God is not going to give me a serpent. He's not going to give me a stone. He's not going to open doors that shouldn't be open. He's going to help me find what I'm supposed to find as long as I seek it according to his will. I'm thankful that God is not some creator of a monster that not only does he not know anything to do with, but he wants nothing to do with. It's untrue. He wants to be involved in your life and in its details because he's a father over you. I just encourage you, if your prayer life is a little weak, if your prayer life lags a little bit, uh, you know, with New Year running coming close, we might be uh, inspired to say, I'm going to make a New Year's commitment, and I'm going to pray this many minutes a day, I'm going to pray through this thing, I'm going to journal my prayers, I'm going to pray through the Psalms or something. Those are all great commitments, and I, I want to encourage that. I, want, I don't want you over lunch going, ha-ha, who's making fun of your resolution? That's a great resolution. I make fun of your lack of resolution, all right? I think we should all be thinking about how we can pray better this coming year. But I don't want your motivation to be, I'm going to do it this year. Instead, allow your motivation to come from a better understanding of who it is that you approach in prayer. Allow your prayers to linger on that first line a little bit. Our Father in heaven, Hallowed be your name. You are holy. You are good. You are righteous. You are true. Before we get to request, before we start rattling off, give me this and give me that, forgive me for this and forgive me for that, we need to get to that. Linger on that first portion a little bit. Our Father, our Almighty Father, maker of heaven, maker of earth, maker of all things in between heaven and earth. You have all things in your hand. Nothing is out of control. See, now I can pray in peace. Now I can pray in a way that's not like, oh, Father, I feel like you've got things out of control. I've got to pray things back into order. No, God is over all things. He wants to get you back into order. A lot of the times, our discipline of prayer is not to shape the things that happen in life, but to shape our hearts as things happen in life. And so they're more about us than they are about the things that we ask for. Coming to a Father that we understand to be a good and powerful Father. Let's pray. Lord, we pray that we would leave here feeling encouraged uh, that, yes, sin angers you. Yes, uh, outside of Christ there's wrath that is just. Um, But, God, it's because you love righteousness and you love what's good. And we thank you that we have Jesus Christ to cling to, that by union with your ultimate son, that we can share this brotherhood with Jesus Christ and that we can truly call you our Father because of what Jesus has accomplished. Um, Lord, we are grateful for that truth and we pray that they would pour into how we approach you, that we would approach you not flippantly, but as an authoritative figure that is our Father, not to be played with or misrepresented. That we would exalt your name and your word above all things. But on the other side, not to think of you as a despotic dictator who could care less about the people that are under the weight of his foot. But rather, you give us an easy yoke in Jesus Christ. And you want what is good for us. So we do trust that you work all things together for good. But we pray that we would allow you to define what's good and not the things that we want. Help us to pray humbly. Help us to pray frequently. Help us to pray with our hands open to what you would have us uh, understand to be the right thing for us right now. And when Scripture makes something clear that's good, help us to pray those things with confidence because you've already explained that this is what you want for us and we just should be asking for it and seeking it and knocking uh, to get to it. Help us to be a more prayerful people. Help us to be more intentional about that so that we can further understand the goodness uh, that, 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 that you are and, and that it would shape how we live as a result. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Would you close uh, in a song with us uh, Stand by standing together and, and singing with us?